friends. They're coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have John Lankford. You might know John from the Mekons, the Three Johns, the Waco Brothers, the Cat and John Band, the uh, Pine Valley Cosmonauts, the Saddies, the Wee Harry Beastie, Skull Orchard, Bad Luck Jonathan, Men of Gwent, or the Four Lost Souls. He is a man of many talents. Not only is he a singer-songwriter for most of these bands, or a part of a singer-songwriter in most of these bands, but he also does art. One of his many projects has been a portrait series for the Country Music Hall of Fame, um, featuring Dylan Cash, and they're breathtaking and beautifully done, and they're really, it's interesting, a lot of his art has this really cool play with words, and we get into that in the interview. Um, John is someone I've been aware of for a long time. It was an honor to talk to someone who has such a prolific career in many different fields. One of the main things that's so inspiring about him is all these endeavors that he does are so different from the other. The ability to adapt and do so many different styles of music and art and expression and be able to do it well is something we should all aim to do. And here is a living example of someone whose whole career has been that and shows that you can do it and you can do it well. John's playing Thursday, August 5th with the Waco Brothers at the Music Box in Cleveland and Wednesday, August 4th at Blue Arrow Records for a special tribute to their drummer they just lost, Joe Camarino, whose career was also pretty extensive, and he had a long resume of bands he played with, one of which you guys might remember, Kelly Hogan, from uh, the NRBQ episode we did with Scott. Make sure to check out one or both those events. They're coming up soon. Before we get into the interview, if you guys can like, rate, subscribe, review, and follow the podcast and all the podcast platforms. It helps me keep talking to amazing guests and sharing these insights with you. And without further ado, here's John Langford. Awesome. So I was talking to I was talking with Richard Lloyd from television and like asking him some theory questions. He was like, "No one's gonna know." I'm like, "Ah, no one's gonna care." I'm like, "No, I do, I do." <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had him on a we did he used to do a radio show uh, in Chicago, and he came on. He came on the radio station and he was coming. I think he was having a bad day, but the, the whole thing had to be cancelled because he tried to start a fight with the producer. Oh, snap. That's <laughs> that's not surprising, but that's pretty. That's pretty it was kind of wild. I was What's like, that wow. the, the eclectic show, right? Yeah, yeah, on XRT. <laughs> he was pretty out, out of order, but I just loved it. I loved that band so much. So yeah, you have to you have to forgive. Well, that's. So part of the legend right you know who you're you know who you called <laughs> <laughs> oh but that that has to be kind of like a duck like a duck position to have because kind of coming from these like punk uh, roots and then like doing music and, and what you do is like you do bits of everything um it's, it has to be kind uh, of like kind of you do art you do music you do radio you got books like that's a, you. You do a lot, my friend. So like, well, I get asked to do a lot of things, which is nice. You know, I've I've really found one of the cool things, you know, over the last few years is that people suddenly people other people have cool ideas and <laughs> say, like, why don't you do this? And it's like, oh yeah, all right, I could do that. And uh, that's been quite nice, rather than having to invent the wheel every time you get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, so. It's interesting too, because a lot of people like uh, I don't know, even with like punk in, in like it seems to be like a very self-driven thing, you know, like the DIY, like we're gonna do this ourselves, and the kind of like yeah. it's almost anti-punk to take in other people's ideas, 
And like, I don't, I don't want to like stay, you know, this is the punk staple. This is what they do. But like, if they had to be generalized in a probably not so good way, like it seems to be like, a, this is how we do it. This is, I'm, I'm right type deal. So they kind of come in and like accept, like, or not accept, but work with certain things as opposed to completely against it. Like, uh, I, know, I totally know what you mean, but I think as <laughs> well, that's one of the things that I've discovered as I've got grown up, got older, is that, you know, there's still threads that reach back through what I do to the very initial kind of impulses, impulses that we had when punk rock started. But I've become, there was, there was a kind of like punk rock in England, there was a bit of a cutthroat thing to it, you know, jealousy between bands. It wasn't, I've, you know, learned over the years that what I, the things I like about the collaborations and the, you know, the community and the combining of ideas and that maybe maybe it's not all about the individual it's so, it's so much as there's quite a lot of that in punk and it's like it's more about you know the we so i think we found that out quite early on because we we had a kind of collective with the gang of four and delta five up in leeds but you know bands there was a kind of rush to with punk bands, a bit, I think a lot of them had a rush to, to have fame and success, you know, and uh, and those things were kind of like almost unpleasant byproducts for us. <laughs> we, weren't that, we weren't that interested, and we tried to sort of scupper that in favour of trying to find other ways to, you know, judge whether whether what we were doing was, you know, successful or not. That, no, that's that's why I was going at because it's. Um... The, it, the group effort, it's kind of like a uh, Joe Strummer's like, you're, without people, you're nothing kind of philosophy. Without the group, what what's the band other than the individual? And like, uh, it seems like with the early punk scene, like bands would just get picked up and thrown out, you know, like in it or thrown up uh, uh, and presented. So it, it would make sense that it'd be that cutthroat and that like uh, uh, everyone's fighting for that stage to get to the bigger stage or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was the. You look at the cities where the big scenes were. It was like London, New York, L.A. Yeah, that's the kind of nature of all branches of capitalism in those places. Yeah. You know, it's it's the kind of clawing over other people to get where you want to be. And I don't know the north of England uh, reminds me a little bit of. Chicago, there was something different going on, and maybe the signals got a little bit crossed because the people who were there weren't people who were desperate for attention and success, but more kind of like just interested in the ideas that were thrown up at that time. You know, and I've seen the parallel sort of music scenes and art scenes happen in other places where, where, you know, that's really been the case, you know, and I love Chicago now I live here because, I don't know, it just seems to be a lot of like-minded people who, you know, want to support, support ideas, people in record companies, in journalists, in club owners, they seem like they're more enthusiasts than business people. That's super important because that it yeah definitely. that makes it pure and and not like not just force force fed what's going to work what's going to move tickets and people because that's not really what moves people in the long run like in the now I think uh, you know if the motivations of musicians were, were simply 
to sell as many tickets. The music would be a bit boring. So agree. There's plenty of people doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there's plenty of boring music, but that's all right. You know, people can do what they want. But here I feel there's a space for for us to do things that are different. And I, I like I said, I enjoy I really enjoy collaborating with other musicians. So was that an easy skill to learn? To work with others, or did it, did it come naturally no, to you? No, no. I mean, there's something built into music where you can just sit down in a room with someone with a different instrument. You just might start making something that's very different to other kind of practices, like writing or right. paintings, things like. That. But no, I think it's something you have to work at, and you have to work out that that's the best way of doing it. You know? Did and you started well? At least you had the drum kit back when you were going the leads for a uh, 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 for art. And like yeah, yeah, I own I owned a drum kit. <laughs> Did you play? Was was that your first instrument? Was the drums? Yeah, yeah. I didn't really. I'm sort of like, I don't know, playing rugby and soccer for years. I suddenly decided I didn't want to do that anymore, and, <laughs> and I was into buying glam rock records and listening to music, and I want to be in a band, you know. But really, in the years when I was kind of going through that the sort of music that was successful and everywhere it was that prog rock stuff. So, you know, I didn't really like that and heavy metal. I like some heavy metal, but I just didn't feel, I didn't feel invested in any of it or feel like I, you know, it felt like I was, didn't have license to be part of that club, you know? Yeah. Then, then punk rock happened and it was like, Oh, we can have our own club. You know, we can have our own, we can do whatever we want. When Tom asked me to join the Mekons, he said, do you want to be in a band where no one can play? Which would have been a ridiculous thing to say at probably any other time in history, but to totally made sense to me at the time. You know, oh, we're just going to have a bit of a laugh. and It's going to be fun, you know. And then it's going to last for 45 years. <laughs> were, you a, were you hip to the band Man? Yeah, I loved Man. Man was one of the few bands I actually could go and see regularly because I lived in South Wales nice. and, I could, and they played a lot. That's one of the, yeah, one of the first bands, I think my 16th birthday man played the top rank in Cardiff and my mum drove me and two friends down there, which is pretty cool. Cause it was a den of, it was a den of iniquity and a debauchery and it was fantastic. But cause they played a different sort of thing. They weren't, they were kind of like, they got used to get criticized for playing like, 18 minute songs but they always had this kind of like space rock thing they were more underground more like hawkwind right they weren't and they really didn't it wasn't it was more kind of like i don't know probably chemically induced but it wasn't like yes or king crimson i'm mean, not quite like king crimson to be honest but there was just a lot of bands that were really noodling and really it was all about virtuosity and with man it seemed to be there was a sort of directness, even with the songs that were 18 minutes long, they, they weren't kind of baroque and just pointlessly complicated. There was a sort of groove that went with the whole thing. I, yeah, I, really, I liked them and I liked, I liked Hawkwind very much. But I kind of liked any band I could go and see that were unusual. So there's another band from Bristol called Stackridge at the same time we were... I don't know if you ever heard their stuff. Very strange. And they worked with George Martin. Yeah, mm -hmm. at one point we made an album, great pop songs, but also kind of you know they were doing very very weird kind of like Vaughn Williamsy kind of uh, 
rural orchestrations of their songs. It was it was kind of crazy, but you know, we just we just wanted to. For me, it was in the mid '70s. It was just I want to go and see bands play live. I don't want to wait for Led Zeppelin to come and play a big festival. I want to be able to go out on a Friday night, and it was kind of a premonition of what would happen with punk rock because that's what did happen. You know, I could go in the north of England. I could go and see the Buzzcocks. You know many times as I wanted in a month, probably, you know, it was right. Right. Well, it really did. It, it kind of democratized the whole notion of music. And suddenly it wasn't about how many notes you could play. It was about how exciting you were. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a good time. I saw a lot of great stuff at that time. Well, there's something to actually feeling it and being close to it. And like, there, I don't know, the bigger shows start to become more of what they are, a bigger show to some degree. And, like, it, you can't, I don't know, when it's dispersed that much, you're not as physically moved by it as being crammed into a sweaty room and, like, oh, man, they're going to fall on us. <laughs> Which I no, guess... that was it. I, I, mean, I think the first man was the first standing you go into. Because I went to a couple of things, at, you know, theaters, and, you know, you were in the seat sitting down, and right. every, everybody was incredibly hairy. And sort of, you know, clouds of marijuana smoke hanging in the <laughs> air. And then, you know, then I sort of went to see Man, and it, it was it was different. It was a bit more like energetic. And then, you know, the bands started coming up, like the pub rock bands. And we really liked Graham Parker and Aruma, and uh, I really liked Doctor Feelgood, bands like that. Which I never saw them live till a lot later, but but. They were kind of on TV a couple of times, and it was just like, wow, these guys got short hair, and they play really fast, and it's <laughs> this looks yeah. exciting. This looks exciting, you know. Was watching watching man was it like I can handle those drums? I can I can find that pocket because like, what what made drums like seem like the easiest way to musically convey yourself was were they oh around? for me I yeah because it's just banging something rather than having to play notes. You know, I tried to yeah. learn to play the guitar a bit. Now, it was just the, the way in, but I wasn't that serious about it until, you know, the fact that I had a drum kit was like, oh, now I can now I can be a drummer in a band. It's well, Once you get the kit, that's where everyone shows up. That's where rehearsal yeah. is. You may, That's where the band happens because the kit's the hard thing to bring. Um, when So... When you went to Leeds, you went for art. Now, what were you doing? Like, what was the medium to get into college? Were you drawing, painting at the time? Yeah, I was like a little teenage impressionist. I just went out and I used to sit outside and do quite nice paintings of trees and landscapes. I had no real idea what I was doing. I just liked the idea that I, I was quite skilled as a draftsman and I liked. I like that was one of the easier things in school for me, you know, to be yeah. honest. It was the path of least resistance. I just I can do this. I could always draw. I don't know why where it came from, but I used to spend a lot of time copying like just photographs from newspapers and doing comic y stuff and then then I kind of got I had a good art teacher at school actually. It was I really liked him and he was really into kind of poetry and turned me onto a lot of you know, the connections between, uh, you know, kind of Welsh art as well, actually. And I thought I learned about Dylan Thomas, nice. and poetry and painters like Kerry Richards and people like that. You know, you could go and see those people's art as well in like museums in Cardiff and stuff. I didn't have to go to Paris <laughs> to see the art. But, uh, yeah, I just, 
I was really just a bit clueless. It was just like I was on this path. You know, my parents weren't that keen on it, but I was quite keen on the idea of going to going away to the north of England to art school. And I thought they'd just let me sit and paint all the time. And I could, you know, impress people with my draftsmanship and then <laughs> I'd be all right. But it wasn't, I, when I got there, it was like, I don't know, it was just kind of, uh, it, it was in a sort of art department in transition and there was a kind of, you know, I wasn't, I was a bit of a hick. I didn't really know much about terribly modern art. So I was not really up to speed and no one wanted me to paint. And I was like, well, if you don't want me to paint, then I won't paint. You know, you know no, I don't do that. I, mean, I, I understand what they were getting at, but it became, I don't know. It was just, became somewhere where I felt like I'm kind of a bit defensive about the drawing and stuff. And I just, I thought I'm not going to do this. So I just, kind of didn't do it for a long time because right. I didn't I didn't want you know I did I didn't really have any ideas of what I wanted to do and I didn't have any way of you know pleasing my professors particularly so I I kind of and then punk rock came along and we, we was just like yeah this is happening this is interesting I know what I'm doing here right. so we you know while I remained in art school um that was a kind of struggle because yeah, I was <laughs> deeply unproductive. So it's interesting with like a, a um, academic art in a way. Like it's almost like they, at least from my experience from talking with some close friends, they kind of train you to like look at something and see what's wrong with it in a way. Then uh, you know, what I mean, it becomes very critical, and it seems like that competition in a, you know, what I mean, that competitive, like not pure expression comes in and I, I i get that part of it is to oh it was very competitive there and uh you know and i didn't really value the opinions of the of the teachers in my first couple of years we had these guys that were, to me they seemed like really weirdly old-fashioned sort of 60s people hmm. and it was obvious something had changed and they were you know there was a lot of favoritism and weirdness in, and i just didn't i didn't want to take part in it you know and yeah. It was much, much more gratifying in a way to be involved in this kind of, you know, rebel thing with the punk rock where your parents hated it and all your <laughs> teachers hated it. And you see, it was, you know, that was, that just seemed like what was going on and what, what was going to, a venue, you know, like a, a, a stage to make something on rather than, you know, pretending to be an impressionist painter. <laughs> things changed though actually when we you know we actually left college me and tom dropped out everybody else had finished and we went and signed to virgin records and then that was, that was all a bit of a disaster but we, we went back to art school because in britain at the time you got paid to go to college you didn't right. have to pay for it we got money from our local county council to go to college so we was trying to sign on the dole and that wasn't working out. And I told so Tom, we should just go back to school. We can go back to Leeds and go back to art school. So we did that. And then when we got back, it was kind of amazing. It was like the world had totally shifted and where the ramifications of what punk was, was suddenly, suddenly all the teachers were like, oh, punk rock's really cool. We knew all along. You guys, oh, you guys are great. You know, and suddenly we'd been out there 
you know, being chopped up in the music biz trenches, and we, <laughs> we go back to to art school, and suddenly we, you know, we're kind of scary because we've been in the real world in this <laughs> this cultural event, which is suddenly everyone's realizing that something actually just happened, and we we missed it. <laughs> so we, we were like conquering heroes going back to art school, and I had a great year, and I got in with a couple, couple of the professors there, and there was different people there. You know, and they really helped me actually encouraged me with with my painting. And that's when I started taking it really seriously. So well, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful turnaround and it's it, coming from following the wave of like just doing something to express yourself and then to come back and like get the respect for that. That's like I usually the, the story goes that the the person doesn't go back and you never get yeah. to hear that praise. so that's that's <laughs> that's so rad. And like, well, it, was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we got praised, but we were kind of like, we didn't know what we wanted to do. We were pretty confused at that time because we thought the whole band thing had just gone. But right. but I think some of the, you know, some of the stuff that was going on at art school had rubbed off on us. So the Mekons actually on the gang of folk kind of rigorous. You know, we weren't just, it wasn't just like some kind of hedonist self-expression. It was kind of like purpose to almost right. everything we did, even though there was a lot of stuff that was bonkers and accidental we were actually you know we had we had a sort of like idea of where we fitted into the structure of it and why we were doing the things we were doing that then rubbed off on on the painting as i started making i I wanted to make paintings that were were definitely about my experiences and you know what i've been doing so i think you know when i moved to chicago in the early 90s then really kind of felt felt like it was time to do visual art you know the stuff i'd learned from being in the band and the way i'd thought about songwriting and the way i thought about you know the power structures involved in the you know cultural area we were working in that that really helped me with the painting as well it was it seemed like there was lots of parallels you know which at first it didn't seem like that at all you know i mean but uh, I find it yeah. interesting with with your work and kind of hearing maybe where it came from. But your your paintings have a lot of words in it, and there's a lot of word play with with the image. And like now, kind of you saying your your first art teacher kind of introduced you to poetry too. Was there yeah. like a yeah a, a, a maybe later on after writing songs and and being more expressive verbally? to come around to it did it make sense did it all just fit together or was there like a there was a oh no there was the the cuckoo i remember reading an interview where you you were trying to paint the cuckoo song yeah yeah and (laughs) and you're trying one two questions on that do you ever figure out what that was about and two did that that kind of dive into like a visualizing a lyrical process like that kind of make that 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 uh, approach clear with um like I think songwriting, you know, like I said, it's an abstract. Music's kind of fairly abstract in a right. way. You know, it's not. You can't. It's like I find it hard to say. Well, yeah, he's a sad chord, and he's a he's a <laughs> rousing bit of militaristic stuff. You know, I mean, you have all those things, but simple references. But for me, what, what my way in into sort of writing songs was was through the words. You know, I didn't really we. I actually liked the idea that um, 
when we started writing in the sort of early mid eighties with the Mekons trying to do the Fear and Whiskey album, that yeah, you know, there were these tunes out there that you know have been re, re you know three chords, they've been re thought out, revamped, reworked. And also there's lyrics out there, there's pools of lyrics out there that you listen to lots of folk songs and they get it's like an oral history and these things aren't they're not the product of one person's fantastic, you know, inspiration and imagination. There's lots of words out there. And you talked about the cuckoo song and I think that's fantastic because the I've actually seen a version of the, the cuckoo in kind of Chaucerian English on the, on a ch- in a church in Reading where my brother lives. We were walking through one day and there was this plaque and it was had the words and the dates and it was, I don't know, like from 1200 or something. And wow. it just said, yeah. e cuckoo is in pretty birdie, you know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, right. So just these songs, these songs traveled, you know? And now everything's like, Metallica own, you know, right. if you play a certain set of notes in a certain order, it's owned by somebody phenomenally rich who's going to sue you. But that wasn't what was going on. The way music developed over thousands of years was people borrowing, pushing things around. And we we, we actively kind of indulged in that, you know, when, we were, when I was trying to write songs and I'd look at other sources of songs and look at other people's written word you know basically co-opt pieces steal pieces you know put them make them things that weren't songs make them into songs and mm. you know and then and also see the whole thing as some great big living breathing cultural monster that's been going down the ages rather than like oh i'm gonna write a song that no one's ever thought of before you know, yeah, it seems a bit, bit kind of naive. <laughs> I, well, I really agree with that because I think a lot of it's it, there's only twelve notes in 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 the at least in our music and like everything else is in between, but still that ratio stands the same. Everyone's just reorganizing it, and the yeah, kind of yeah. it's almost like when we learn to speak, right? We're imitating so we can convey ourselves eventually. We're all going to say hello or goodbye at one point and no one's going to, you know what I mean? Like it, with music and art, it's a conveying and like, it, it is, it is interesting that like everyone takes, uh, stakes the claim of this is my, this is my diminished fifth. Uh, you know, this is my blue note. This is my chrome, uh, uh, bebop run. It's all the, the, the one, the same note that, that crunchy note in the middle there. And there's all this. I, it's interesting that people stake claims to it, but it really is just shared expression. I think there's something of value within sharing your your um, influences and wearing them on the sleeve, being like, "I yeah, like." Yeah, I mean, Gango that's before. what we wanted to do. That's what we really wanted to do. And that we thought we thought about. You listen to a Jimmy Rogers song, and you listen to other songs from the same period, and you go, "Oh, that verse is from another song." That's just you know, and it, and it probably goes back. You know, ages. It's probably if we had record, you know, just because we've got recorded music, doesn't mean that's where it's something started. Yeah, you know? yeah. So in, in the end, we sort of reluctantly became folk musicians because we're like, oh, it's all it's all just folk music. <laughs> you know, right? Well, I mean... there is a sort of manufactured pop music which is made by professionals to, you know, to sell. There's some of that, and I like some of that, but. Mostly, yet yeah, pretty much everything's everything that comes from the 
grassroots upwards is a kind of folk music and functional music and we that we we just got very interested in just thinking about how the history of our songs were written and how they were made and it wasn't you know there's a, there's a way to do this you don't have to sit around and go oh, i'm not inspired today you know mm. and the same it was the same with art i thought you know if i'm a painter i'm a cultural worker and i get up in the morning and work you know and i've you know mechanisms to to make me make stuff you know to to and it's not like oh i'm starving in my garret waiting for the my muse to fall upon me that i think that's super important too because so much there's so much of that ethos of like inspiration will strike until then you wait but is it i mean it seems like it's more just constantly working at a thing whatever if it's music or if it's art if it's writing just constantly like having like yeah. a routine do you have like- i think I, I think it's like you know it's like exercise almost you get the muscles you get the muscles tuned up and they actually you know i always think with songwriting sometimes i don't really know where songs come from you know but you know my sub it might be because i've been doing something else it might be because i've been painting hmm. but the subconscious is kind of like churning away and doing things and sometimes things just pop up but i think they come from like the process of things you've been doing i always find if i'm if i'm working really hard with paintings i i will write a lot of songs and it's like turning on a tap you know yeah and it's the force as you would say <laughs> but you know the the more you kind of do it the better it's i don't know it's 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 tricky because when you Having said that, when you're totally focused on trying to get a song right, it usually turns into a disaster. So that is weird. How like when you give something too much attention, it it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't I do like songwriting as well, though, because it's like it can be. You can be really kind of brief, and you can get these ideas down. Right. Uh, quite quite a lot of ideas down. You can just get you know, and it's. I always look at a sheet of paper and go, that's, that's probably that's enough. I don't need to have, you know, I always think I've got, I have too many words in, in my songs, you know. <laughs> I said, let's simplify this a bit, you know. But uh, it's a it's a nice, it's a nice thing to be able to do and to, you know, a practice that we've, you know, been involved in for a long time. I've, I tried to write longer things like novels, not, not novels, short stories. And, yeah. Yeah, I find that very odd. Right. Well, I mean, it's a whole nother, like, you get to describe a scene for, like, a novel. There's so much, you have to think about the whole picture and describe every little aspect of it. Where in a song or a poem, you can kind of, you can kind of condense that. And then it, yeah, it's interesting because, like, both of them are noble feats and, like, not an easy task to do. You know, it's, it's, it's just as hard to write something vaguely and, like, more quick than it is to be able to describe everything in great detail but also the same you know vice versa it's it's really hard to to describe the whole scene and <laughs> um with a as far as like songwriting like do you are you familiar actually in chicago are you familiar with steve dawson yeah okay cool I, just, I would say steve dawson is a friend nice okay i just talked with him because he's got his new record coming out but, uh, no, he's great. He's a really good, good guy. Yeah, he said this quote from um, 
uh, I think it was Picasso. I can't remember exactly, but I'm going to say it was from Steve. He said, like, uh, inspiration finds you when you're working. So as you're working out a thing or shedding on a thing, you're in that mindset, it seems like. And, like, that's when those – and it seems just how you described with painting how multiple things will come out. If it's a – Yeah, I, I find this – when we're in, like, a situation with a few of us and we're working on um, – the Mekons are working on an album, suddenly you get to a point where it's just so easy to find ideas and things and you and you bounce the ideas off each other. And it is like a kind of force that's being turned on. It's almost like, fucking now we have to get all this down because, you know, you could just write, you know what, something you can see a, half a picture and you know what, you know what the other bit should be. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's the point. And that's, I've really never found that so much outside of, you know, what we do with them, you know, me comes to call it music, call it songwriting, whatever you like, but you know, that's, that's definitely, you can set up a situation where you kind of know it's going to, there's never, we never really had times where we're like, Oh, what are we going to do? You know, <laughs> it's just, things tend to sort of go off quite quickly, you know, and there can be many, many different ways to start, but you know, it's it's beautiful and like you guys have been working well coming from that kind of like let's be in a band where no one knows how to play it, it almost seems like there's that that group ethos has to exist this like um this big brain unit of a uh, being able to pick up what someone is leading towards is is it kind of like a, a trade of hands like someone comes in with like a, a chord progression or a lyrical uh like uh, um a narrative they want to present and then brings it to the group when you guys are having those condensed focus, like studio sessions or uh, yeah, it... it's usually like very half formed ideas. Okay. Okay. So um, almost like it could just be a word or a concept or, you know, then we'll think of usually first we'll think of the title of the album huh. Okay. and then all these things will extrapolate from that. You know, it's so when you thought of the curse, <laughs> Well, that was uh, just the. <laughs> we thought we were cursed. <laughs> I, 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 I've heard that that was your your blood that wrote out <laughs> the cons on that. It's true. Yes. That's a fair amount of blood. <laughs> uh, Maybe the was, picture looks bigger. I don't know. No, it was. It was I didn't. I didn't like. You know, you can lose quite a lot of blood. But the weird thing was, I tried. I was trying to find up the easiest way to get blood out of my body. Yeah. And uh, I think I somebody said, jab yourself in your earlobe. Wow. Because that's completely impractical because you can't see your earlobes. <laughs> so, so I think I did that. And then I had blood running down my neck, but I couldn't tell how to gather the blood. <laughs> so then I think I pricked myself in my calf because that was like a yeah. natural palate. Right. And it was can... like, oh, you just prop <laughs> your leg up here. And as the blood comes out, you can paint with it. So that's what happened. But I think somebody rang the doorbell and I had some blood on my T-shirt and my neck and my trouser leg rolled up with blood all down it. And I, I answered the door. Because <laughs> 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 a bit of, bit of screaming and panic. But... That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. What are you doing? No, just, you know, writing a curse. What? <laughs> 
yeah, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> Come on in. Um, I'm good. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they came in. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but when did uh, when did guitar become like, when did you start to figure that out? Like the kind of backtrack. When did like, and the, you mentioned you, you worked on it a little bit before the drums, but when did, like, because guitar is like the mode of expression, I feel like. I, I had, um, when Delta 5 formed. Okay. It, I, it was the Mekon Soundman. Yeah. And the Mekon's ex-bass player, Roz, who was my quite close friend of mine from college. And then she just said, you should play guitar. You could play guitar. So I probably picked up a guitar and just done a few things. And I was like, I thought he knew two chords. And I was like, all right, I can be in it. It's, it's all the songs are going to be the same key. It's just you just find a note. I was like, oh, I can do that. And um, it was actually, that's, yeah, we did some, we actually did a bunch of gigs. And I was, I was kind of in the band for a while. And it was nice. But then they were, we'd signed to a, a major label and they were getting their sort of thing together. So I, I left, but, um, pretty soon after the Mekons finished with Virgin and everyone kind of, a lot of people just wandered off. I, um, I started a band called the three Johns and, and then, and it was somehow I became the guitarist in that. I don't want well, sure. It wasn't really, there was no kind of, it was even looser than the Mekons when it started that band. It was just a bunch of people getting drunk in the afternoon and reading poetry into cassette machines and banging bongo drums and stuff. But but uh, I don't know it turned into a pretty good band, and that was definitely what where I learned you know what I wanted to do on a guitar. And again, it was very economical. You know, I had a, I used a bottleneck. So once there was a solo, I just go mad and slide the bottleneck around all over the guitar and play by ear, you know, find the notes. And then there was a lot of kind of fairly brutal kind of riffing on the bottom couple of strings and a few chords tossed in as well. But, you know, it was, a, but what I used to do is I used to program the drum machine okay. for that band. So it was kind of like a, kind of like a little magic trick because you know i could program the drum machine to fit exactly with what i could play on the guitar and then kind of make it sound really good and the bass player was a really good musician he was a guitarist but he decided he wanted to play bass and he was very melodic and it just had a certain strange magic to it you know didn't really sound like anything else which was nice because because it was not many people were using drum machines at that time, and particularly not, not like the way we were using them. You know, drum machine would be for a sort of synthy electronica band, but we were sort of almost like the Stooges or something. Yeah. It was... Yeah, it's like a, a juxtaposition of like the of the uh, of folk instruments with the electronic backing to it. It fits. It fits. But like, I can see like how at first I'd be like, "What are these guys doing?" Um, yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, it was odd. The Three Johns was an odd band, and the Mekon at the same time I was doing that, the Mekons were veering off into you know having violins and accordions and in the bazooki thing, right? Or it's like a the sa yeah, loose saz, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's or it's the small, it's the cousin of the bazooki, right? It's got like three strings as opposed to that's the Turkish version of the. I think that's uh, pretty much the same as the bazooki, but it's Turkish. Okay, okay, yeah, and there's some. That instrumentation for the Mekons is awesome. 
Like, thank you. Because uh, it's, it's it's you don't see all that put together. Then hear reggae tunes. You're like, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. <laughs> but, a lot of people's in you know a lot of influences and ideas have to be accommodated in that band. It's it's good. Right. Well, it's cool that it all fits and it all goes to serve the song. Like it doesn't seem like the accordion guys shredding like out of place licks. It all fits. And you guys, the Mekons, were, for a minute, were, you guys were using a drum machine too, right? Was it the same drum machine from three? Yeah, times? it was. It was the same drum machine. <laughs> same drummer. I was pro- I was programming it. Yeah, <laughs> I think the first half of yeah, think like three. There's three tracks on Fear and Whiskey, which are, are using the three Johns drum machine. Yeah, which incidentally, his name was Hugo, the drum machine. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Hugo did good. Hugo's great. <laughs> Um, now with the bottleneck, that's interesting. So were you playing in, uh, I imagine it'd be like an open tuning, right? So to play those chords, you're just No, kinda, it was no. a regular oh. standard tuning. Okay. That's, that's a little more harder to really get that bottleneck. Well, well if you think nice. about, you know, I just limited how many strings I hit most of the time. Mm, okay. Yeah. Or I was, or I was game for total, <laughs> total sonic warfare. So right. that one, but I, I found that. An A shape, you know, going up the neck, you've got those three strings. And then you flip over to that kind of minor thing with the top three strings. Hmm. Okay. And uh, that seemed to, seemed to, you know. Get it through? It was limited, but you could, you know, you could squeeze some excitement out of it. Um, so when with the second Mekons record, you guys were working with Bill, Bill Leader, right? And he, like, yeah. kind of introduced the the kind of punk elements of, of folk music. Now working with did that kind of like going into the three Johns, like when there was that kind of like uh non not knowing what was gonna happen, is that kind of what like cemented that like approach to guitar? Or was it just like I can express this way, let's run with it? Cause those guys were real folk real folk uh, uh aficionados, right? Who was that? Uh Bill Bill and John Gill. John Gill, yeah. Oh yeah. No, they I mean, it's become apparent that Bill Leader was almost like the Alan Lomax of Britain. Mm. The stuff that he promoted, uh, that he produced and recorded, a lot of his field recordings as well. He's a very, very important figure in British folk music. And we just stumbled on him. We didn't, we had no idea. He was just this guy living in, living in this house in Halifax. We had, we had no idea. Who, that he was who he was, and then working with him a little bit, he suddenly said, oh, "I got this young guy who might be better for you guys to work with." And oh, we like you, Bill. You're great. I said, "I'm going to get John Gill to come up." He worked with the Sex Pistols in London. And I was like, we we're like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> that'll be interesting." Yeah. But you know, when we started the second album for Virgin, and then they dumped us, and Bill off actually sat us down and offered to put the album out on his label. <laughs> like wow you know by then we'd worked out kind of who he was and he'd explained a lot of things to us we just didn't want to we just didn't want to burden him with it frankly because we had no idea if anyone was willing to put it out we did get it put out in the end on red rhino which is a more of a punk rock thing that it did quite well and uh you know it was a good album but uh but yeah no they the recording sessions with Bill and John John Gill were would be very um 
educational to us. And, uh, you know, there'd be the clunk of the tape machine going off. And one of them would say, let me tell you about this. <laughs> and then we'd be sitting on the floor, you know, in the control room, just listening, listening to all these mad stories, you know, and finding out about how they identified things in, in us that we didn't know were there. So they said we were like a folk act. They said we were like the, uh, limit, the limitations of our musicianship was what made us interesting and how the almost like the like the limitations of the instruments in Cajun music give that a certain sound. Mm. They compared us to, to that and it was great. And then also played us loads of kind of dub reggae stuff and were quite happy for us to experiment with tape loops and you know, just it was just a very after being on you know, being with Virgin and being on this sort of three chord punk band that did a certain thing and had some success doing it. It was just time to be like, no, we're not going to do any of that anymore. But what what then do we do? And it was, you know, it was just a fantastic mistake to turn up at Bill Leader's studio. I, find, I think we, our manager found it in the Yellow Pages. <laughs> we just went there because it was sort of fairly cheap and fairly nearby. And we met, you know, this incredible person, so... Happy, happy accidents. Right. It almost is very kind of like a, like the bands you were saying you were drawn to from the rip. Seeing these bands that are doing this, this weird, just creative thing. And once the punk kind of end of it hit like a thing where it was formally like becoming formatic. To yeah, get this you restart. That happened very quickly with punk rock. Um, now, what well, can you tell me about Terry Nelson? Terry was a DJ here in Chicago, and he he met. Met up with a gang of four, and Phil, who was the bass player in the gang of four's brother, was roadieing for him. And he was actually my roommate up in Leeds for quite a long time, flatmate. And uh, he just moved to London, and Terry came over and he said he was asking Phil about the Mekons. He says, Oh, the Mekons, yeah, they still exist. One of them lives in my house. <laughs> and so Tom, I think, was living in Phil's house at the time. And uh, in Brixton, and Terry came over, and I was still up in Leeds, but he he had this thing he wanted to find the pretty things and the Mekons, because both were sort of like in a hiatus at the time. And so he not only found the pretty things and the Mekons, he got Dick Taylor to join the Mekons. So we had the kind of legendary 60s rock guitarist playing with us, which was fantastic, you know? Just amazing. Who did, he he did stuff with Jagger right before the Stones. He was in the Stones before. In the Stones, before yeah. the Stones. <laughs> yeah, he was. They they got. I think he he left because he didn't want to. He didn't want to play bass. He wanted to play guitar, so he formed his own group. It's that's it, interesting. Like the bass player always gets the gig. Everyone needs the bass player. Yeah, that's <laughs> how Bill Wyman got the gig. You're right. And they've been missing a bass player ever since. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So, and he also, like, he introduced you guys to, like, a, like American country artists, right? Yeah, a lot of, we were, like I said, we were already getting into, into Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams and um, a lot of Cajun stuff and 
Swamp Pop was another thing we really liked. Mm. Like this kind of dupe, dupe, Louisiana jukebox yeah. kind of stuff, which was a mixture of, you know, a lot of basic kind of, a lot of white guys doing soul numbers, but with steel guitars and accordions and stuff. It's, you know, it's really just very cool. And it seemed to us like very functional music. Then he introduced us to more classic honky-tonk stuff like Mo Haggard, George Jones, uh, Ernest Tubb, Hank Thompson, Patsy Cline, some of that was on there, some Loretta Lynn. And we were like, oh, this totally makes sense. You know, we were only probably in our mid to late 20s, but we were, oh, all these songs were about drinking and... (laughs) lost love and that's what he said Terry actually said to the Mekons that you we were like a a country band because all our songs were about drinking in bars and failed sexual relationships and it's like it's like yep that's pretty much it and then we felt you know and I liked the thing about all those artists I just mentioned that, that it seemed like they conquered that whole gap between the artist and the and the audience, you know, mm-hmm. what we couldn't stand in the seventies was these bands wearing capes, singing about elves and wizards, and you know, people playing a million notes a minute. Someone like Mo Haggard was writing very, very simple record songs, which were very much about the lives of the people who were consuming that material. You know, so it was almost like. They'd effortlessly erased this gap between themselves and their audience. Like they were, they kind of were their audience, but it wasn't, you know, this was different. It wasn't just like a sort of folk music. There was these sort of playful, clever, witty songs. Very, you know, it was, it was a complete revelation to me. And we, while the rest of Britain was going, going off to, you know, listen to acid house music and make techno we were (laughs) thinking about Ernest Tubb (laughs) (laughs) different direction there but (laughs) yeah quite the turn it's that's it's interesting that kind of like because with techno music it's like or even those trance music it's less it boils it down to like one thing so whatever on top can be like entertaining and like in the same way, kind of like with country music, the chord progression or the melodic aspect is pretty, pretty um, droned in a way. Like there's movement, but it's not too movement. You know, what I mean, like where the story, the thing on top, is what is really, I think, what resonates. Yeah, no, it's it's storytelling. You know, right? Um, so did he introduce you to the Sundowners, or was that when you went to Chicago? Yeah, you met those yes. guys. Okay. Yeah, we went. We were in Chicago one night, and we just went down there. And after a show, I think at the Cubby Bear, we all went down. We all had hats and shirts and shit. We bought a <laughs> yeah. Western Wear show in Chicago that afternoon, and we all went. And then the Sundowners kind of saw us came in, come in, and they were like, "Look, we got a band here, you guys. You know, you want to get up and play?" And we're like, "Nope, no, we don't need to do that." They just kept insisting. So in the end, we got up and played, and we were absolutely terrible, but. But uh, yeah, for them it was. Um, I don't know. They had a, they had a break. 
but I don't know. They seemed to think we were kind of amusing, and I became very good friends with them over the years. Right. Very sad that they're all yeah. they're all gone. But it's amazing, even just that break. And I don't know. Maybe like I'm sure you've you've had the that experience when like playing in a. Um, in a different type of gig, maybe like a Wee Harry's in the Beasties gig, and you see a guy that looks like they play, you get up and do the kid thong for a minute, or like <laughs> that break is is super appreciated. In, in like, but when you can share that kind of experience with someone and work through that that state, you know, I mean, that's it's a it's something you don't really not too many people get to share that that kind of feat of like of sharing the same stage and trying to entertain the same audience. So like. It's a really interesting uh, bond to have, and I think it's one that resonates deeper than than maybe just a conversation or maybe even recording something. Well, you the can... fact that they would, you know, I I made a point of when I ever went back there to have something in me, you know, in right. my back pocket. Right. So I learned a few songs so I could get actually get up there and sing a song with them because they always asked. And you know, they never said, "Oh, you got you, you're not as rubbish as you used to be." It was just they were just completely accepting. And we always did we always did things with them. They played my wedding. They were yeah, they're just gentlemen. Yeah, they were just fantastic. Do you remember what what was like the first song you went back and learned after that first experience? The uh, be ready some for... Johnny Cash stuff. Okay, okay. I figured I could pull off the Johnny Cash. That was my that was my idea. Well, it's um. It's interesting. I came, I become, became aware of your career through a radio show, but it was the, I think it was the American uh, uh, broadcasting of the Joe Strummer's London Calling. Oh yeah, yeah. I was in. They had me narrate it. And like, uh, did you know you knew Joe, right? Yeah, I met him a few times. Yeah. Cause like, did you guys ever play share bills or cross paths with? Yes. Like, yeah. A couple of times we played. We opened for the Clash. The Three Johns opened for the Clash in like the eighties, and uh, I think it must have been in ninety nine or two thousand, whatever his last show was in Chicago with the Mascaleros. We opened for him, and you know hung out with him that night as well, and it was pretty entertaining. Well, what was that like? Is he like? Was he always playing the radio? Was like like the bit like was the music always going? Was he like? Yeah, he always had a, he had a little cassette machine and uh, he was playing stuff on that. Spliff in his mouth, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he had his actually had his daughter with him on that trip and his wife and you know they weren't there when we got to the we turned up for soundcheck and they finished the soundcheck and they'd probably gone back to the hotel. And, uh, but we um. So we we um, did went on did our set and then he just emerged, sort of on the stage. Not you know, not the audience could see him, but he was in the sort of wings of the stage, waving his fist in the air. Because I said, "Here's a song about Newport in South Wales, where I grew up, and uh, he'd lived in Newport." And we had a lovely conversation about that that night because there's all he dispelled a few myths because. And loads of friends who'd say, oh, yeah, we knew Woody when he was in Newport. And my mate, my cousin taught him how to play the guitar and all this. And he was at the art school. But I found out all you know, the truth about it was he was a, actually at the, um, his mates were at the art school. And he was a grave digger in the cemetery behind my parents' house. And it was Whoa. 
quite interesting quite interesting stuff and we actually put ourselves in the same room there was some trying to think where where we used to go but there was one night i was like did you go to the melody maker rock and pop competition at altering tech in 1974 and he was like i was there yeah i said oh, i was there i was there as well so <laughs> but we used to drink in the same same pub and yeah he's pretty intense that's were you guys aware of each other while that was all happening, or was he? No, just... I was about five years younger, so I was just a, like a little snotty-nosed kid creeping around, you know. But uh, it's funny now; I do know one quite very, quite very good friends with some people that he, you know, lived with in Newport and has kept kept in touch with over the years as well. So it's uh, like I've seen his first guitar, and I've uh, heard cassette tapes of them rehearsing. And he had a sort of his bands were like, you know, they were not punk rock bands. But he, he was really into rock and roll and Woody Guthrie and folk music right. before the clash. It's right. really interesting. Because he was going as Woody, right? Yeah, that's what he could. That's, that was his nickname, yeah. Interesting. What a small world. And that, 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 uh, that, series that you shared of that like for me musically was very important because it interest me introduced me to all these different styles from around the world and just like right the strummer mythos and like philosophies and who's this guy at the beginning and then i dove into your career and it's is equally as vast as like his music selection like <laughs> so That's in not... my mind like you guys running around the same scene i was like that makes sense well i will say there's a lot of parallels that we've his life and like you were talking about Lou plays the South and they both uh, and Justin Adams who plays with Robert Plant is also in a band with Lou um, and they're all our kids I think their parents were like in diplomatic corps and they traveled a lot as kids and went to different places Strummer lived in a lot of different places as a kid just in the same thing and Lou I think they were all like they were all exposed to a lot of stuff, which they found very interesting, you know, and yeah. retained retained that interest. Whereas you have your kind of like classic, you know, a lot of punk rockers were just channeling heavy metal and glam rock and making, you know, a kind of speeded up version of that with angry lyrics. And then from the beginning, you had people who were, with much broader and more interesting tastes, you know, processing stuff, which was cool. Right. Well, it was even more punk rock in the sense of punk rock because it wasn't just the same thing everyone else was doing. Well, that's the thing. It wasn't meant to be the same thing, but then, it, you know, it quickly yeah. turned into a cul-de-sac, you know, leather jackets with studs and big Mohicans and, <laughs> you know, but, but up in the north of England, there was no punk rock uniform there was no you had synth bands you had kind of you know band like the fall band like the buzzcocks doing like kind of little weird arty love songs you had electronic bands in sheffield you had like jangly bands up in edinburgh you know people people were channeling all sorts of stuff that was not a style it was about it was the ethos of it was you know making your own entertainment it wasn't like it had to be a certain way but of course that's how the music business got the lid on it because it became a style right well it's got to be able to they got to put it in some record in some category some genre thing for yeah it. yeah um what's even i guess 
they kind of bounce back. What's even more punk rock is being able to to take that gig and do like going back to the wee uh, the the wee hairy beasties, like because uh, part of my gig is that uh, I work with pre ever work with pre cool preschool students. You know what I mean? Like right, right. They're a tougher crowd than your normal crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, you have to you have to you keep need their more, attention. You need more energy than you are arguably need for the punk gig. <laughs> But what yeah, brought I've, that about? Most fierce, just having having kids myself. Oh, okay, okay. And not not really thinking much of any of the kids' music that was coming into the house. Yeah. Uh, my mate Rick Sherry was in the band Devil in a Woodpile, almost a kind of like weird punk rock jug band, and me and him and Sally just started talking about oh, we should do we should write our own kids' songs because he had little kids as well. And then we got them to sing on the records, the kids, which was fun. Awesome. But, you know, was it what kids, it used to be like Burl Ives used to be about animals eating each other and shit like that. And now all the kids, there's no way you could have a kid's record with animals eating each other on it anymore. It's all like rainbow puppy music. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely can't. So, <laughs> so we just thought we'd go for it and have songs about farting and homicidal squirrels and <clears throat> <laughs> shit like that. Right. It was well, fun. That... It was good. It, it was good, but it's, there was a window, you know, of right. when it was interesting. And then actually people in the band were not very suited to entertaining children. So Sally used to sit, you know, oh, no. was afraid to open her mouth because she dropped an F-bomb. <laughs> uh, Rick was kind of worried, you know, fights might break out. So it was a... It, it it lasted as long as it should have. Right. It's hard. It's hard to code switch like that. It's hard to go from talking to a very adult audience like, like the the Mekons crowd. I imagine is much more willing to hear, um, uh, rougher jargon than children. <laughs> well, we didn't. I didn't have a problem with the rough jargon. It was just like, how, you know, what level is diff- kids of different ages? How do you right. actually? Right. Actually, actually communicate with them and just go. Hey, let's all jump up and down. Right. And it's like, yeah, you would do that, you know. But I think, I think the kids like the records. I mean, the live band wasn't. It was okay to me. It wasn't very successful. So we weren't obviously weren't children's entertainers. But I think the records were actually really good and really funny. And I know a lot of kids found them quite, you know, quite imaginative. So it's if that was all. If that's all we did. That's fine. But you know. Yeah, it's crazy what kids will take. You know what I mean? Like when, well, when they, I think they playing. really prefer something. It's a bit kind of a bit odd to have just be told, you know, look at these pretty puppy. He's so lovely. You know, it's yeah. like, it's I can't, you know, they know kids know kids have dark sides. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, another question I want to ask you is a uh, so. Elvis's bass player said you sang like a pirate. Maybe this is a good spin-off from the last question, but or or a guy who a session player who played bass with Elvis. Well, he's said Elvis this? is that's Norbert Putnam. Nor oh, okay. He's original member of the Muscle Shoals, you know, rhythm right. section. Yeah. Yeah. He was also a big producer in Nashville for a while and session bass player up there, played on, you know, played on black records, played on white records, and ended up Ended up working with Elvis right after his death, wow. who we loved, and you know, he was on some of the some of the really cool recordings Elvis did in at Stax, which is a great album. I don't yeah. know if you ever heard that. Yeah, we uh, 
I met him at the Country Music Hall of Fame and we became buddies. And he said I sound like a pirate and he wanted to make an album. So we went down to Muscle Shoals to make an album. It was fantastic. It was a lovely time. What did he, um, did he meant to say lesbian pirate or just pirate? <laughs> no, he never thought, he never thought I was a lesbian. <laughs> Cause it, the Mekons, you guys did that, that play. <laughs> like, yeah, with Kathy Aka. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? What stepping into like, cause well, the, the, the kind of backtrack that last, the, the record you did with him was your last solo record, right? The Lost Souls. Yeah, it was a it was a band really, not so much a solo record. Right. Or, I mean, I guess I wrote I wrote the songs, but it was uh, the, the, there was something else good going on there. <laughs> it's, it's well, it was it's a super good record. Like that record, sonic like songwriting wise and sonically is beautiful, and it stands like out of your work, it stands in a very specific spot. So, I mean. Coming from Muscle Shoals, that's a very specific area, and you're going to get that sound. But that sonically and just songwriting, it's like nothing else you've put out, I think, in a good way, in a very well, good you. way. Um, thank you. I'm really proud of that record. It's a good record. Those backup singers you have with you rip, like or lead singers, I should say. I don't. Or the other I was singers. Say yeah. I was going to say <laughs> they'll punch me if you read, if they uh, see that. Let me. I'll edit that out. The the singers you have in that. <laughs> they're definitely. Uh, they're definitely lead lead singers, and you know it was that was one of the things we had, you know, that was hard to explain. Really, that were, I thought our voices were meant to be kind of like one voice intertwined, you know, not, and they weren't meant to be like over there being backing singers. So, one of the other names for the project was you know, remember that film that was Twenty Feet from Stardom or something? Oh yeah yeah yeah. About backing vocals, yeah, we were gonna we were gonna call this six feet from an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. So I don't know why you. I mean, the title you went with was pretty good, but that could have. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit too derogatory to, to me. So <laughs> I don't know, but maybe it some... made us laugh. It made us laugh. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but um, kind of mounts back to doing the play and like doing other like kind of like more artistic expressions with the band. One thing I found really inter uh, interesting was the the thing you did with Vito. Vito Aconci. Um, yeah. But like the, the thing where the band was built and there was these crazy stage drops and each piece was kind of put together and then it became one unified band at the end. Like, yeah, it's a very, it was a very um, bold um, idea. I'm not sure <clears throat> if it really worked like how we wanted it to, but you know, we were just willing to, like I said, it was another moment where we were just willing to go along with this guy's vision, and uh, we definitely ended up chip, you know, chipping in and saying what we wanted, how we wanted it to be when we thought things weren't working. But uh, it was a very large step. Into right. un, an unknown territory. I've never seen or even heard anything like that. Like for a band to even approach, what was like? What were some of the kind of conflicts that his vision? Like, I'd imagine some of it didn't line up with actually how a band kind of functions. Not that. Yeah, it was a bit of that. It was a bit. Of the, the main problem was that he wanted just to 
it was totally deconstructing the band. He wanted it to be, it was very hard mm-hmm. to understand what to do and still, you know, part of us still wanted it to be entertaining for the audience. And I think he would have been, you know, he's from the conceptual art world. He had no interest in it, no interest in it being entertaining whatsoever. So, so there was a, there was a kind of certain difference there, which we, you know, we really tried to go along with what, our instincts would try and make the thing more kind of like maybe more musical or more palatable perhaps and you know for it to just be <clears throat> as brutal as he wanted it to be was was kind of hard you know yeah that, that makes sense because you spend so long trying to like convey yourself and coming from the folk thing where like you're relating to this artist essential that's that's the main goal I guess with all music but like uh, coming from that and like that that intimate connection is so keen and when you work so hard to develop an audience and then just to kind of try to alienate them that has to be a really weird that, uh, that might that's a better way of putting it yeah but i think he i think he actually was interested in not patronizing the audience and thinking that they would be interested in something that was so radically different you know he was crediting them with quite a lot of intelligence so that's, how many times did you guys perform? How much was that? Only one performance? Was there a few? I like, can't remember if we did it twice or three times. Okay. I think we did it three times or something. I can't remember. But it was all they were all different. But then we had like a light, a guy mixing the sound live as a dub, so it was kind of a dub thing as well. Okay. Which I don't think was in his original plan, but I think he kind of like went with that because. So okay, so it was all kind of. Was the whole thing? Like... But, it, but it was the same song. The whole thing was one song. Right, right. Was it? And he latched onto that song because it was called a hundred percent song. And he went, ah, oh, that's it. We can have, then we can have five percent song, thirty <laughs> percent song. And build it up. One, okay. <laughs> but awesome. it built up over all these different permutations of right. the structure. So. Different people were playing and lit differently at different points. It was it was very uh, it was rigorous and you know the band's all different as well. Some people in the band, you know, really liked the idea of working with Vito Conchi because they're very you know Tom was big fan of Vito Conchi and just thought this was you know absolutely great. And then other people were like who's this kind of weird artist dude why are we right. doing this so but you know that's the nature of things were you hip to were you hip to Vito in like that type of art coming from um like... yeah, I, yeah I knew of him but I wasn't you know I wasn't Tom was very 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 knowledgeable about, about it and okay. passionate about it yeah okay I just I liked the guy when I met him that was my thing was that he was just some of the most amazing people I've ever met but just socially and just someone to, you know, be in the presence of was, was pretty great. It's... Same with Kathy Acker, you know, we, we, we got to work with people but mainly because <clears throat> we just, I don't know, we're just really impressed by them as human beings. Right. It's just, it's, it's so inspiring that not like you guys attempt and you, it just, everyone involved just is gun ho for trying something completely different. And it makes sense coming from your origins, but like to have that, that mindset and that ethos and that 
philosophy carry through is very very impressive the to the to, to actually be like water and fit into whatever and you know not have like that band ego thing where like well we do this no i think Our... that's what yeah that's what i would say there that it's it that's really destructive we don't do that sort of thing you know right <clears throat> we would not we we don't we yeah there's a bit of ego there probably and we have to think well what, why why don't we do that you know and it's usually there's no good reason so but you know we understand that that's what you've got to you have to suppress that you know right that's that's a super inspiring <clears throat> that you guys can do that and and adapt all these different things is there a as far as like a project when you're presented with one what's like the what's the key factors to be like yeah let's do it or is it like down the try whatever no we, there's lots of things we decided we wouldn't do because they weren't interesting but God. um i don't know it has to be a bit i suppose there has to be some consensus with everyone right you know that's beautiful so, that's very beautiful yeah. it's super inspiring like us um one thing uh, when you guys did the the pagan um band uh wedding did that lift the curse yes <laughs> spontaneously the curse was gone beautiful <laughs> i think the curse actually rebounded on on the, those who messed with us that was the idea of it so because we still got we're still going yeah got him <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's beautiful. John, I really appreciate your time and, and hanging out with me and talking with me for so long. Um, yeah, well, let, let me know when, you know, what, when you're going to, what you're going to do with it and where, when, and I'll, you know, endeavor to right, publicize right. it as well. Beautiful. So the Waco brothers, you guys are playing at, um, the supper club, music right? box on the fifth. Yeah. The music box on the music box on the fifth. And that Wednesday before you're, you're playing at blue arrow records. Yeah, we're doing a little tribute to our drummer. Okay. Who passed on in uh, January. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, he used to, he had real close connections with the people from Blue Arrow Records, so we're doing something for him there. Beautiful. Like I was saying, John, thanks so much for chatting with me. Um, no, no, it's great. Good. We'll have a chat. We'll have a chat in a pint in Cleveland. Sounds good. Yeah.